I'm on now. We have been walking through what has probably been a 13-week series called The Table, looking at fellowship with Jesus. As Jesus called his 12 disciples to himself, they walked together for three years. He ministered with them and amongst them, and he gave them ministry to do. And as the last week of his life came into play, he called them together for a Passover meal in the upper room, and he used probably two or three hours to train them, to finish their discipleship, to continue to pour into them that which he wanted them to know and that which he, they would need so they could carry on the ministry that he'd be giving them. So he spent a couple hours just loving on them, teaching them, and sharing with them in preparation, discipling them, and in so doing, because it's recorded in Scripture, discipling us. And Jesus gives these guys a full and accurate picture of the Christian life. He tells them, stay connected with me, abide in me, have an intimate, personal relationship with me, and you'll be fruitful. Pursue me. And he tells them that the world will hate you, the world will reject you, that you will not be treated better than he was treated. And in the middle of that, you will never be alone. That he will go and send the Holy Spirit. And last week, we finished his teaching in 1633, when Jesus said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we're reminded that take heart came from that same passage in Mark where the storms are up in the, in the middle of a storm the disciples don't know where Jesus is. And Jesus says, take heart. That the reality of our lives that some of us are facing all kinds of storms and it's in the middle of that moment that Jesus says, take heart. It's practical. It's applicable to us. This is how his discipleship works out in our lives. So we know that regardless of the storm we're walking through, that we would take heart, trusting he has overcome the world. This week we open chapter 17. And though his teaching might be over, we should note that his discipleship certainly isn't. Jesus in in this chapter is now going to model prayer for his disciples. We know that it's modeling because it's been recorded for us. And this is actually not a very common occurrence in the New Testament. We only have a couple of places. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there are three. In John eleven forty two, Jesus prays to his Father and thanks him for always hearing him right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. In John 12, he asked the Father to glorify his name. And of course, the most famous is the Lord's Prayer given in Matthew 6. So when we open chapter 17, it's going to be a chance for us to see the heart of Jesus. To hear what he prays about. To see what's important to him. And before we dig into these words, I want to start with this for you. A couple of times in the last couple of weeks, people have asked me, What does it take to prepare a sermon? And I've walked them through various steps. One of the steps that I walk through is the second one, actually. I call owning the text. It's where I study through the text, and I start asking myself, 
Where is this text challenging me? Where is this text going to convict me of sin? What about this tears me apart? See, if the Bible isn't working in my life, I certainly have no authority to stand before you at all and say that this book should have authority in yours. So what does it do to me? And this is the only place I could really fit this part in, but I want you to know what this did to me this week. If we accept prayer as a right means of discipleship, and in my whole heart of hearts, I believe that's what, how Jesus used it, then we have to appreciate that Jesus anticipated his disciples were listening, they were learning, and that they would take something from that. Which makes me ask the question, when I pray, do I understand that people are listening? And let's be honest about that. In this context, I absolutely do. But in a lot of other contexts in my life, I don't. It occurred to me this week, while praying with my children, if everything I prayed with my children came true, what would the outcome be? When I sit with Pierce at night and we pray before he goes to bed, if everything we pray about came true, what would be the outcome? And at this moment, i got to confess to you that the most likely outcome of our prayers coming true is that my kids would sleep well, they would learn to obey, they would stay healthy, and they'd honor their mom. Now those are good and right things for me to pray for my kids, but is that really what I want to model about the kingdom of God to my kids? See, this is me taking what God whacked me with and offering it to you. What about my heart do I really want my children to overhear me pray? What about the kingdom do I really want to be putting before my kids in prayer so that Pierce knows, man, daddy takes that seriously. Daddy prays about that. Daddy calls me to pray about that. So just be mindful as we walk into this that if Jesus is going to use prayer as a model of discipleship, that that model ought to impact our homes and it ought to impact our families and it ought to be something we're mindful of too. So let's crack open John 17, conveniently on page 903 if you've got a Red Pew Bible. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know the one and true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus prays. In fact, this prayer that lasts all of chapter 17 gets broken up into three parts, and we're going to take them individually. Here in this first section, he prays for himself. At least that's what is how it's referred to. In the second section, he's going to pray for his disciples predominantly. And in the third, two weeks from now, he actually prays for you. And we'll tear that apart too. But let's look at this. In verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, takes you back to the context, he lifts his eyes up to heaven. 
So let's talk about prayer posture for a moment. See, when I was a kid, I was taught very clearly that there's one way you pray. And it's to fold your hands very nicely and close your eyes. Now, I will rightly confess to you, it works in my house too, it does keep your kids from eating while you're praying. But might we also consider the reality that this isn't the posture of prayer given in the Bible? Always? Just throwing that out there for you. If we were to walk through the Bible, there are at least five common ways to be found, one of which is bowing. And bowing is not just your head, by the way. Bowing can actually be your whole physical body that you might address God something like this. That you're acknowledging that he is far greater than you. We find it in Psalms 5 when it says, I will bow down toward your holy temple or on the fear of you. In Psalm 95, 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, which takes us to the second one, kneeling. See, some of us grew up in a Catholic context. And in an attempt to uncatholize ourselves, we've stopped kneeling. But we actually find it to be a pretty right view of prayer in the Bible. That you can get on your knees and pray before the Lord. Standing. It's often found in the Old Testament. It's inferred in the New. But it's actually reasonably documented by the early church fathers that as the early church gathered, you know what they did? They gathered in a circle and they held hands and they looked at each other. You want to talk about awkward. They looked at each other because as they prayed for boldness for one another, they wanted to see each other's eyes because they understood they were going into war. A spiritual fight. So as you're beckoning God to give you boldness, you want to look at a man's eyes. Fourthly, you find laying prostrate. Falling down on your face before God. Finally, fifth, with your hands raised and your eyes looking high. And this is where we find Jesus in 17. The idea is that Jesus has probably got his arms up and he's looking to the Father. This is the way that a, a Jewish man would have most likely prayed and certainly the priests would have prayed. That, that Jesus is standing there with his arms held high looking up to the one in whom he's addressing. And he calls him Father. He calls him Father. I was sharing with Pam yesterday that one of the common prayer critiques when I was in college is making fun of people who say Father too much in their prayer. Now, if you've ever been a part of this critique, you should know in what becomes probably an 80 to 90 second prayer, Jesus refers to his Father seven times, so watch it. Jesus was pretty good at saying Father a lot too. But when Jesus says Father, he means something totally different than what we think. Because when Jesus says Father, he's saying Daddy. He's saying Abba. He's talking about this deep and intimate relationship he has with his Father. He calls him Abba, which means Daddy. So if we're going to address that, if God's going to say Father, we're going to call it a Daddy then we need to step back and get real for a second and acknowledge that some of us have father issues. Some of us, when we want to address God, we step back and we struggle to call God Father because of our own experience with our fathers. So let's at least acknowledge that as a church, that some of us didn't have perfect dads. Some of us had dads that were far, far 
far from perfect. And it's caused us some tremendous issues and baggage. And you know what? That's real. It's absolutely real. But let me step into it a little bit more and tell you that my dad was a great dad. And I was incredibly blessed by him. But he wasn't perfect. And the reality is, if we want to talk about father issues and having dads, the reality is, is there's not a father ever born that was perfect. And in fact, all dads are in varying degrees of falling short of the father. Every last one of us. So whether you had a good dad or not, we miss it when we measure the father by our experience with our father. And of course we do. It's got the same title. But the reality is that the father is the true father by which we should measure our fathers. That when we consider the heavenly father, he is the true mark of a dad and will love us and parent us in a way that is far more perfect than that which we experienced in our own homes, even if we grew up in a great one. For, so for just a moment, if you're a kid in the room, if you define yourself as a kid, which in this context will be if your dad is within about eight feet of you, I want you to look at him. Oh, I'm serious. Look at your dad. You need to know that that guy's a sinner. You need to know that that guy will fall short. You need to know that that guy will disappoint you. Why? Because he's human. And absolutely every last one of us will. That guy needs Jesus badly, just like every one of us. You can quit looking at him lest it gets awkward. <laughs> Somewhere in this, though, we have to acknowledge that Jesus didn't have a perfect earthly father either. We don't know exactly what happened. We do know that at age 12 he's there, and somewhere around the time he starts ministry, he's gone. Did Jesus lose his dad in his teenage years? Couldn't that have been painful? Did Jesus lose his dad in his early 20s as I lost my mom? Couldn't that be painful? Jesus had a thorough understanding of incomplete parenting because he experienced it to some degree or another and somehow was able to overcome that, to look past the shortcomings of earthly parents, to appreciate the perfection of an earthly father, so much so that he had this personal relationship that when he looked up, he decried daddy rather than father. So much so that when Jesus addressed his heavenly father, he chose an incredibly informal term rather than a formal term. Because he wanted to express for his disciples this deep relationship, the personal nature about which one can be with God. And I think we ought to be challenged by that. I think we ought to consider this reality in which God the Father could know us in this deeply personal way. In which we could be challenged by that. In which we could be known so thoroughly and accepted so completely in a way that some of us might dream that our fathers might have. So if that's true for you, let me just stop for a moment and ask you to step into that. Lean into that a little bit and let God be your father. Let him be the perfect one in your life. Let him be your daddy. 
The way Jesus came to see the Father is His. Jesus prays, the hour has come. The hour has come, it is time. That tells us, that foreshadows for us, as He's about to go to the cross, that likely as they're standing in the upper room, praying what is the final prayer, they're about to start walking through the city of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he'll be arrested. So Jesus is absolutely at the precipice of, of walking into his crucifixion. And he has one prayer request. He puts one petition before God, and this is it. Glorify your son. Now, if we just take it as three words, we take it on face value, this probably equates to the most common American prayer request there is. Make me look good. Bring honor to me. It's about me. It's a common request. It comes in several derivations. It could say, pass this test that I didn't, help me pass this test that I didn't study for. Help me get a promotion I don't deserve. Help me have a chance to go out with this girl I have no chance with. You name it. But this idea couldn't be any further from the truth of what Jesus is praying. When Jesus says, glorify your son, the Hebrew of idea for glory has this rude idea of heaviness, of weightiness, and not in size, but of importance. This really heavy, heavy importance. It's used to describe a man's reputation. But of God, it's used to describe his majesty. It's used to describe his beauty. And it's the only word that's given when he physically shows up. You get his glory. That tells you that when God shows up, you immediately have to start dealing with who he is. Glorify your son. Piper describes this as to make much of. In effect, Jesus is asking that much could be made of him. And why? Jesus says, can you make much of me so that I can make much of you? But let's make this even more practical, walking into the situation. When Jesus says, glorify the Son, he's not asking for the easy path. He's not asking for the easy route. He's not asking for a pain-free existence. When Jesus says, glorify the Son, he's talking very explicitly about walking faithfully to the cross to die an agonizing death in your place. When Jesus says, glorify the Son, he's saying, let me be faithful to the purpose that I was given, that I might walk boldly and confidently towards the cross where I can die for these people you've given me. That's what Jesus says when he says, glorify the Son. It's not about me. It's not about what I want or what I desire. It's about bringing you glory. It's about you, the Father. It's all about the Father in this moment for him. Glorify the Son, that the Son might glorify you. Jesus says, regardless of the cost to me, I want to glorify the Father. And see, that's a prayer of discipleship. 
when he puts before these guys, regardless of the personal cost to me, what it's going to look like, what it might cost me, I want you to be glorified. And see, that ought to be the prayer of the church. Because I promise you, if it's not the prayer of the American church, it's certainly the prayer of the world church. Pick up a voice of the martyrs. Follow the Joshua Project. Start to engage yourself in the persecution of the church around the world. And you start to find guys who lean into persecution and count it an honor to be persecuted for the name of God. They've counted an honor that they could be bruised for the name of God. That somehow God might be glorified by that. That somehow their captors might find strange their testimony of their willingness to die for what they believe readily. Glorify the Father. It's his only prayer request. Regardless of the cost to me, I want to glorify you. And in verse 2, he says, Since you've given him authority over all flesh. By the way, I have no idea why Jesus starts referring to himself in the third person, but clearly that's okay according to the scriptures. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom all you have given. This becomes this outplaying. He refers back to this in verse 4, this completed work that he's accomplished. Since the Father has given him authority over all flesh, he has the right to pay the debt. Since he has authority over you, given to him by the Father, he has all the authority to pay your debts on your behalf. And in paying your debts, you're granted eternal life. And dying on the cross and paying your debt, you're granted eternal life. So what is eternal life? In verse 3, he sums it up. He makes it very clear so that these guys would know. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now I want you to look at that for a second. This is where it's super helpful for you to have a Bible in front of you. I'm not making this stuff up. It's here for you. Look at that for just a moment. How does Jesus define eternal life? Because he doesn't seem to define it here as what happens to you after you die. He doesn't seem to define it as that next step. He doesn't seem to be defining it as that thing that we should just wait for and hold out for. He seems to define it that eternal life is knowing the one true God. Knowing him. This know is a personal term. In fact, it's an incredibly intimate personal term and it's sense the way a husband and wife might know each other, that you might know God in this personal way. Jesus puts before these guys this knowing of God happens on this side of death. That's eternal life. That's where true life is to be found. It's to be found in knowing him in this intimate and personal way. And walking with them. So as Christians, when we hold on to life, it's to know God. 
to find ourselves so thoroughly and completely in him that that might define us. See, if we see it in a different way, we just kind of camp out and wait. Well, death is coming. Let's just wait for it. You know, it's imminent. It's going to happen to all of us. Let's just camp out and see what happens. Do you see how that's so easy to do if you define it after death? That's not how Jesus defined it for these guys. So that's one of the things that helped these guys as a product of being his disciples walk so boldly forward after Pentecost because they knew God in this intimate and this personal way that started to define them. They started eternal life now and that options available to us when we know him personally and Jesus whom he has sent Make much of the Son, so that the Son might make much of the Father, and in so doing will be forgiven of our sins and be restored to a right relationship with Him. Jesus says in verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus puts before these disciples, I've already accomplished everything. Is it just revealing the Father? Is it discipling the twelve? Or is it possible he resolutely has in mind what's in front of him? Scholars disagree on how to interpret this. But the reality is Jesus said, I'm done. I've accomplished, God, everything you've given me to do in discipling these guys and revealing you and heading to the cross. He completed the work. And in completing the work, we get to verse 5. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you before the world existed. Jesus knew resolutely going to the cross, he'd be returned back to the relationship he had in the Father that was preexistent to eternity. That Jesus would once again walk side by side in completeness with his Father, and he longed for it in the way we might long for eternity. Jesus says, now I'm heading back to you through the cross, back to this relationship we've had. If we were to look at this and to step back from these five verses and say, what does Jesus pray for himself? It becomes perfectly clear. Jesus prays for one thing. Regardless of the cost to me, regardless of the cost to me, Let me glorify you. Jesus acknowledges that it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about my desires. It's not about me going further. It's about you. And it's so doing, I think, sets an incredible pattern of prayer for for Christians. Prayer is going to be a big part of our church in the next several months because after we finish this week, We're going to finish two more weeks in chapter 17, and then we're going to spend our entire summer looking at prayers in the book of Psalms, acknowledging of who God is and where we find ourselves in light of that. In the next couple weeks, we'll continue to unpack what Jesus has for these guys in terms of discipleship, but the thing he models for them here is a self-sacrifice for the benefit of the kingdom of God.
that I think challenges all of us. Let me pray. Righteous Father, having opened up this text this morning and seen what your son prayed for himself, there's no more fitting thing we could pray for a church than to say, God, have your way with us. Have your way with us. Whatever you would do, Father, that would bring your name glory, have your way with us. Father, that you would be glorified. Father, I pray that as a people and as a church and as a family, Father, that we would make much of you. We'd bring glory to you at any cost. Father, may we never make the mistake that we think our prayers are supposed to be solely about us. Certainly you care about us. Certainly you care where we're at. You care about our needs. But Father, will you make us a church that prays for your kingdom, that prays for your glory? So Father, that if our prayers were all to be true, it wouldn't just be that we'd be a healthier, more obeying church, but that if all of our prayers were true, Father, that your kingdom would be expanded in Moorhead and Fargo in the United States and around the world, Father, for your glory. Amen.